Hello and welcome everyone to episode 7 of Helium Podcast. I'm doing the intro solo today because Christine is away at a conference. For episode 7, we talked to Sarah K. Peck of Startup Pregnant. She's at startuppregnant.com. We were so happy for Sarah to join the show because we had a great conversation about time management reading reality. We always hear and read these things about how time management is so important, but Sarah really cut to the core of the subject and came up with some thought-provoking exercises that you can do to try to get more time into your day and to focus on the things that are truly important to you. This episode is worth a listen. It's one of our longer ones, but we're hoping that you enjoy it. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to mention a poll that we put on our website that will help us understand the best content to bring to you for next year. So we've put a poll at teamhelium.co slash poll where you can go and answer some questions about what what professors are focusing on throughout the year. And those are open-ended questions and we'd love to hear from you about themes and topics that you want to hear on the show and how that relates to your calendar. Now here's the interview with Sarah K. Peck of Startup Pregnant. Welcome to the Helium Podcast. We're excited to have you today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, the first thing we wanted to start out with is is what we ask most of our guests is really to talk about their background and motivation and how they came to be where they where they are. My a lot of people don't know this, but my background is in psychology. So I have an undergrad degree in psychology and then I went on and pursued a graduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania uh, in architecture and design. And I worked for 5 years as a, um, a designer at a global landscape architecture company. But while I was there, I got really frustrated with how things were done, the system of work, the culture of work, the processes we used and, and craved more innovation. And I think Matt, you've talked about this before, but I was always kind of drawn to the entrepreneurial crowd and said, what are they doing and what can I learn? And I ended up starting some side projects and side businesses and began teaching. Um, eventually ran my own consultancy, uh, a media marketing and communications consultancy, which was about explaining how things worked because communications is about telling stories. And I found in the architecture world, we needed to do a better job of telling stories. Like what is the future that we are imagining and how do we get you on the same page and how do we share this story with you in a way that gets you excited and wants to build this crazy idea? Cause architecture is expensive, but you know, you only have one shot to do the Korea Olympics venue. What's it going to look like and how do you convince people to get on your, your same page? And uh, from there, got into the the more tech side of things, learned some coding, worked with a, a couple of startups, and today I'm building my own company. Um, it's all about the intersection of work and parenting, and it's specifically targeted towards women. So I run a media company called Startup Pregnant, and it's about what we can learn about efficiency and work culture and doing better business from what I see as an untapped market, which is mothers and parents and people who are doing some pretty incredible things and have been often overlooked or forgotten in this culture. Yeah, I think I saw, I think I saw the other day you tweeted about, you know, people getting, 
you know, magazine articles about them. If let's say they're, if it's somebody from our, our audience, you say they're a mother, not, no, not if they're a mother, but if they're, let's say they're a triathlete and a scientist, it's like they get this article written about them. But if they're a mom and a scientist, it's like, oh, okay, that's just sort of normal. (laughs) There's not this, 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 there's not this like sort of gold medal given to them, but it's, it's seemingly the same level, if not more level of effort to be a mom and sort of a permanent condition as opposed to just like, Oh, I'm just training for this event. Right. And I'll, I'll give that idea. I got, I uh, heard first from Anne Marie Slaughter who runs, um, who wrote this book called unfinished business. And she was this big policy director in DC and now runs, I think it's the company's called new America. Uh, and she, she's the one, she wrote an article for the Atlantic that I think is the most read article in the Atlantic that talks about how, um, the title is why, why women can't have it all, which as you can tell from the title, everyone started clicking. They're like, wait, stop. What? (laughs) Well, I want to know what she has to say about this. And it was one of the most read articles. Um, if not the most read article on the Atlantic and in it, she, she, she told this analogy, like if you have a worker that is, um, somebody, and, and this is my story. I was working at an architecture company. They're notorious for late nights and grinding. And I was also doing, um, triathlons and I was doing open water ocean swims. So I was getting up at five in the morning and doing an escape from Alcatraz swim. And then I was going to work and showing up at eight 30 or 9 AM. And people were like, Oh, you're such a, you know, expletive. I'm like, you're so cool. (laughs) And they would would be like rallying behind me. And then, you know, end of my, I I crossed into my thirties, I got married. Um, and I had a kid and people looked at me like I was a leper, like you're pregnant. (laughs) What do we do with you? Like, like, it was like, I'd signed this, uh, like this cultural death certificate where it was like, okay, you're done being useful to society. And now you're going to go do that mom thing. And people start writing you off. They start, um, they start thinking that like, you're not going to be as productive. You're not going to be as helpful. And I was like, wait, stop. I've done the escape from Alcatraz, not to toot my own horn. I feel a little weird tooting my own horn right now. I was like, but I, I can do some pretty hardcore stuff and I work really hard. And I don't think that's just going to suddenly change if I have a child. And, and, and what I found was, was kind of astonishing and amazing, like more creative energy, wildly more efficient. I had to be more productive. And then also, all of the things about the weirdness of U.S. culture and how we need better parental leave policies and better support of mothers is also true, and I stand by that. But I also found this niche where I was just like, wait, we're not, we're overlooking something here where there's some pretty radical, like, innovation and insight and wisdom to be harnessed, and most people are just looking the other way. It's such an excellent point, and one that I think it resonates with so many parents, um, especially as a, I've got three kids and I can absolutely um, kind of feel where you're coming from as far as, you know, in, in my case, I felt like becoming a mother was not only something that I could overcome and I could be good anyway, but just for some of the reasons that you cited, I was better because of it, right? It gives you this eternal perspective on what's important. Prioritization becomes easier. Um, but at the same time, this hardest and greatest thing that I'd ever done, not to say that everybody has to feel that way about their relationship with their 
motherhood, but it was not externally valued in the same cool way. It was just mundane. Yeah, that's what people do. You might be able to be cool anyway or productive anyway. Um, but it's, it's not only something that, um, needs to be overcome. It is something that fuels this whole new direction. So as far as you know, and I think for our listeners in particular, a lot of people are balancing this. Um, and a lot of people are in different types of academic or research cultures where it may be that not only are you juggling this overwhelming number of obligations so that your life feels undoable, um, but that some of them you are intended to keep invisible. And so can you talk a little bit about what your kind of advice for people, do you have a mental framework that you offer to shift people into a space where they can really feel that power rather than a drawback from their parenthood? Yeah. The invisibility of, of how we spend our time is a real problem. And uh, I think the first thing to do with any puzzle that you're working on is to give it daylight to actually openly talk about it. And if you can't do it, maybe with your direct colleagues, like you can't go, you don't feel comfortable in the case of motherhood, for example, you don't feel comfortable going to your colleague and being like, man, I was up four times last night and I spent three hours today pumping. Like if that's not your jam to talk about it, find a place where you can start having those conversations and find an edge where you can start broaching the the subject. Because if we, if we don't talk about something, we we can't actually move forward in terms of fixing it or identifying it. And in time management practices and in productivity practices, this is just time mapping. This is, you take a journal, like even with uh, the behavior around eating, you write a, you write a food journal because the first step that you're doing is you're just becoming aware of what's actually happening. You know, what time did I wake up? When did I do this? How much time is it taking? And then who can I trust to share this data with that we can look at it and start to tell new stories and tell um, and, and get information about it? That's a really powerful approach. Just naming something makes it real, makes it valid and allows somebody to connect about it. So uh, in, in line with that, I noticed that you have um, something called mastermind to sort of give people a space to talk about things and help each other through that. Could you talk a little bit about how that works for people? Mm, sure. So I developed for myself a system. I, I've, I've studied a lot of systems. You know, probably already how geeky I am, but for listeners, I get really geeky about time and systems and productivity, and I'm constantly experimenting. And over the years, I've kind of modified and taken different systems like David Allen's getting things done and different principles of email management. And then bigger systems of planning out larger chunks of time, especially as an entrepreneur or a solopreneur or somebody who's responsible for years of your life, like academics that may be listening to this show. How do you structure that time and how do you plan it? And I developed a system um, based on the quarter of the year. So I divide each year into four, which there's about 90 days in each quarter, 13 weeks. And I, um, I, I take each quarter and I set a series of goals and then I check in each month. And the reason it's so important to set, to break it down less than a year and even less than a semester is because 
it's really hard to understand and conceptualize time and make progress. If you set a six-month or a 12-month goal, you don't know until 12 months later whether or not you hit it and whether or not that's still a goal that's relevant for your work. So I like to chunk things out into smaller pieces and set strategic goals for the next 90 days or the next three months. So I started doing this for myself and it worked really, really well. And I think Todd Herman has a a program called the 90 day year that is similar to this. And the best self journal is another tool I really love because they're also based on the 90 days or the, the quarter, the 13 weeks. And I started teaching this to people. And so I brought people together for three months or four months at a time. And, and today I'm doing it for longer. It's for a year long program. And I bring people together because I believe that number one, doing it alone isn't helpful. Number two, so we need to have conversations and witness each other. And then three, a little bit of structure goes a long way. So we set a quarterly goal and people, they say, okay, over the next three months, I want to, and it might not be the craziest thing. It's not like I'm trying to write the entire book in the next three months. It's, I want to get the bones of the outline done and write at least one sample chapter, or I want to read at least uh, 10 books it related to this topic so that I feel like I have mastery before I begin the writing process next quarter. Or I feel really exhausted and tired and out of shape. And my goal is to get good sleep for the next quarter and exercise twice a week. So those are the kinds of goals people will set. And then we check in once a month at the top of each month and say, okay, given that this is your quarterly goal, what are you going to do over the next month to make progress towards it? And then we have more casual meetings where you can come and uh, we have like a live QA and we have a video meeting and then uh, people can post in our shared social group and just say, oh, I totally got off track this week. You know, I was up three times a night last night with my toddler and I still feel super tired. How do I get back on track? How do I stay focused on this goal when things aren't going right? And we provide the community and the support space to continue to take actions on our goals week by week, month by month so that we can make progress together. That's, that's something I want to go back to something that you mentioned there because you, we talked a little bit about Christine mentioned the mastermind concept, but it, it's funny because one, one of the, one of the things we were discussing before we started recording is, uh, the fact that we interviewed some of our audience members before we even considered starting this con, uh, this podcast. And one of the scientists that I interviewed is very, very young, just started out probably about a year and a half ago. And she mentioned this concept to me. Oh, I have these friends from graduate school and we check in on a regular basis every two weeks and we meet about our goals. And I I said, you're in a mastermind. And she's like, what's a mastermind? (laughs) She didn't know, she didn't know about the concept, but essentially they had created this. uh, And I think this would be excellent for scientists to adopt. I, the more that I've done it, I did some pilot groups with Uh, people for four months. And the more that I've done it, the more I think that a year is really essential. Because sometimes if anyone is familiar with how life actually works and not this pretend of how we hope life will go, um, sometimes you have a quarter where you just keep getting sick. And then a quarter where you need to focus on getting sleep. And then the next quarter, you record all the episodes of your podcast, but the podcast isn't launched. And then the next quarter, you finally launch the first episode. And it's important to be in community for long enough to see people go through the dips and the downs and get to the place where they wanted to get to, which for most people and most projects can actually take at least a year. 
That's really interesting. So I would love to ask you a question, both selfishly for um, getting advice, which is one of our main <laughs> main drivers sometimes, but also just um, for anybody that's listening that might be skeptical. So a lot of times, you know, when people will tell you, oh, it's important to take time for yourself, self-care is important, and you know this, you really believe it, but you can't envision, one, how much time is that really going to take, and how do I, what is it that I put aside so that I can actually do this, what feels like a luxury of spending time to organize my time and my goals. So could you kind of lay out maybe a case for how you make that activation energy jump to being able to do this and how much time does it cost you to kind of enter into a commitment to do something like this? Mm, So so specifically for masterminds or group programs, if you're already really busy, how do you find the time to do it? Is that kind of the gist of the question? Yes. And probably everyone who needs it is too busy to feel like they have the time to do it. So, um, so there, it must be the case that there is the time. So does it, you know, um, not necessarily how do you set aside the time because you just have to make a decision at some point, but what is the time commitment out of a week, out of a, a year that you need to be able to block out to do this well? Mm, okay. Yeah, I understand both of those questions. So uh, first, I'm going to, I want to answer that. And also I, I wrote uh, two articles. One's coming out now, but it'll be out by the time you um, publish this episode. Two articles for Forbes. One is why masterminds are so important, and one is how to set your own mastermind up with all of the different components. So if people want to, you're listening and you're like, oh, what did Sarah say? I can't listen to this again. Um, go there. It's all written out. You can search for it on Forbes uh, to get like a complimentary resource. So... Uh, you talked about how a mastermind group is an accountability group and a support group. It's a space for you to stay accountable and and meet regularly. But I also want to say, kind of giving the broader philosophical context before I answer your question about timing. um, One of the the problems that we have, a couple of the problems that we have actually, we we live in a hyper-individual individualistic society where we put a lot of the stress of success on individual achievement and we measure um, and isolate individuals. And from a core philosophical standpoint, I think that we need a lot more community infrastructure to, to really rally and get success. And there's a little bit of a misnomer out there when you look at individuals who have been celebrated for their success, you don't see the 20 or 30 people behind them that it takes to really grow the project. And oftentimes it's hidden on purpose for some reason, because they want to pretend that they've been an independent overnight success. So working together and working in community is, is so incredibly important to our success. And another way of flipping it on the head and, and kind of for anyone listening, a good way of asking this is, are you getting what you want doing what you're currently doing? Like is what you're currently doing working for you? And for me, I tried for a long time to do it all myself and it didn't work. And I realized how much I needed to rely on the help of other people, the feedback, putting my words out there as a writer and having people read them and respond to them, taking the time to read other people's writing and interact with them, taking the time to just talk about how hard it was to find time to write and how busy I was. And all of that was part of the ecosystem of making great work. So the question you asked was about how much time is the time commitment for this? Um, and 
How do you find that kind of time when you feel really busy? Which are two separate questions. The first, how much time does it take? I, I think you can do it in a minimum of one hour a month, but that doesn't speak to how long it takes to find the right people and set it up and the facilitation of it. I recommend that you meet for 60 to 90 minutes every two weeks at a minimum. That's the best structure I've come up with. So every two weeks you meet and you have an hour long call. If you're four people, you have 90 minute call if you're six people. So each person gets 15 minutes to talk and you get to share what you're working on. Now, the problem is is the facilitation, the coordination, and the scheduling can eat a lot of time out of your inbox and create some logistical hassles. So there's two really critical subcomponents here. The first is finding the right people, which can take time. You don't want to get advice from people who aren't in the same space as you. It's not helpful. I love my sister to death, but I'm not going to ask her for advice on my really specific marketing business project because she teaches calculus. She's really smart and she, she's a calculus teacher. Like I need to find other people that are in the same space as me to have these conversations so I can go deeper with it and they can understand and empathize because they've been there even though they're working on a separate project. And finding those people can be hard and it can take some time. And I recommend putting together some sort of application process where you say, these are the people I'm looking for. I want people, for example, for mine, I want people who are founders, who are leaders, who are on the entrepreneurial path or they're managing higher up in a business setting. They are parents or they're very soon about to become parents or they are starting the parenting path, which means you may be struggling with IVF for many years, but you have been trying to get pregnant because you know that this is a thing that you want to be involved in. Um, and... And then within it, I even divide it into subgroups. But have an application and say, these are the type of people that I'm looking for to join me. And then these are the things that I want to have a conversation around. I want to have a conversation around better you know, time management practices for really, really busy people and um, feminist issues in the home life because I feel like I'm shouldering more than my share of the burden. And, and you get the idea. You just come up with a criterion for what you want to talk about, how you want to grow, and the kind of people you want to join you. Once you have done that, and I have an application process where people fill out lots of questions. They tell me about who they are. I actually then interview. I, I create a list of the top 20 to 30 people, and I interview them. And I break them into groups based on people that I think will be a really good fit for each other. So a lot of my work and the reason it's a paid program is because there's the first, the network of people that I'm attracting to it, and then the interview process and the facilitation and bring pe bringing people together. Once that's set up, I recommend that people have a at the same time, you make a standing calendar commitment. So it happens, you know, the third Thursday of the month or the second and the fourth Thursday of every month from 2 to 3.30 p.m. And you require a 90% attendance policy. You're allowed to miss in the case of extreme events, but you cannot just cancel. And the reason for so is that it doesn't work if people don't show up. And we live in a culture where people are really flaky. And so people get two chances and then they're out. You're going to be out of the group because you're not benefiting from it. And you're wasting the equivalent of five other people's 90 minutes of time at an executive senior level, which could be the equivalent of tens of thousands of dollars. So you have to show up. Um, of course, 
if somebody dies or you have a nightmare or an emergency or you email people in advance, like, of course, we're forgiving. But those are those are the kind of requirements for the time and for getting the right people in. And then, okay, I'll pause too, because I've been talking for quite a while. That was the, uh, how much time does it take? You want me to keep going with the, um, like, how do you find the time if you're a busy person? Yeah, I, I think that that's really been a, a helpful kind of imagining what does it look like on your calendar? And then I love that you have separated it into a different thing to say, what does it look like to create that potential to do this in your mental space? Yeah, yeah. The separation, like finding time, this is a harder question for me to answer. I mean, I have strategies and systems I can share. Um, The only reason I want to add a caveat, it's a harder system because it's a very gendered question. Um, time is not the same for men and mm-hmm. women. And it's a, it's somewhat of a classist question too. It's, it, time is not the same for, um, laborers that work, uh, at hourly wage versus people who work in, um, the, the information economy and the idea economy. So with those caveats that, that we can address what is generally known as the information economy, um, <sighs> everything's changing so fast and we live in a world where uh, we are going to be continuously bombarded by more things that we can read, see, do, or consume, or create than we have time for ever. And the most important thing we can do is create boundaries against all of this. And it's a skill that we weren't asked to do 20 or 30 years ago and maybe isn't being taught in schools. But creating really strict systems around who's allowed to contact you how often you contact them, what you say yes to, and how you do your work is probably one of the most critical business skills of our present day and one of the most critical personal leadership and personal development skills. And there's a real, uh, there's a lot of people that say, oh, if you just master getting things done and get your inbox to zero every night, it doesn't actually work because it doesn't deal with the overload and the overwhelm. And for me, I've had to go back and get almost to a like insane level, get very, very clear about what I'm doing and then eliminate so much of the rest to a point that it seems almost extreme. And I've lived uh, out many different experiments of minimalism and not shopping and not buying. I've had periods where I, this is maybe a little too candid, but we'll go there, um, where I don't shave my legs and I don't shave my armpits and I don't wear deodorant. And then I skip showers every other day because I valued the thing that I was doing, um, that I was choosing more than all of these other things that we are kind of blind to and can take for granted as things that we quote have to do. So a good way to think about this if you're listening and you're like, yeah, that's great, but what does that mean? Is um, there's a story that's attributed to Warren Buffett. It is not panned out that he actually said this story. But if you search for it, a lot of bloggers have written about this story that in the fabled land, Warren Buffett said to an airplane pilot. The story goes like this. It goes, okay, write down the top 20 things that you want to accomplish in your life. Like, what are the top 20 things that are super important to you? But for me, like, for example, one and two have been have children and write my book. Those are my top two. They always have. I want to make a baby. I want to make a book. Um, good news. I'm working on a book proposal and uh, had my first kid two years ago and we're pregnant with our second kid right now. So 
those goals are, family's a hard one to say is a goal, but it is, you know, my goal. But you scroll down the list a little bit and there's things like, oh, you know, I want to run a marathon. I think that would be fun. And that's probably number 14. Well, according to not Warren Buffett, the, um, (laughs) the, you write this list of 20 things. And then he says, you really can maybe only do the first five in your lifetime, which means numbers six through 20 are anti-goals. They are actually these little teasers that seem nice that are going to cost you number one through five. You have to pick, which means all those little like, oh, maybe I'll run a marathon this summer. Those little ideas, they're actually impeding or in the way of the supreme focus and dedication and elimination it requires to be able to get just the few things done as time is much shorter than we think it is. And so those ones from six through 20, you have to avoid at all costs. And you're not going to go after something that was never a goal in the first place. Like if you're not interested in being a musician, then that's not going to be something that distracts you in your lifetime. But if you have kind of a sort of goal that's down there number 13 or 14, that is actually going to be a detriment in your life. And I found this wild, but the philosophy was really important. And it's, you've got to cut out most of the stuff that you're doing in order to actually do the thing you want to do. And in many cases, there's only one or two things that you can realistically do. Now there's stuff in our lives that happens. There's life clutter and life stuff. I take my kid to daycare. Is that the highest and best use of my brain and my time? No, I don't love being on the subway for 45 minutes each way. Like that bores me to tears. I make do, I listen to podcasts, I read books, I prep. Um, and there's so much more of that, you know, like making a lunch every day and like giving my toddler a bath. Like I love spending time with him and I can find the bliss in each moment. But, but, um, you know, I'm not writing my book during those times. Life has lots of stuff that fills it up. But I think the way to find time, this is a long answer to your question, is that you have to do a really hard look at what you are currently doing and whether or not it actually matters. And I would argue that 80% of the stuff that you've put on your plate doesn't matter. They're not going to write on your epigraph at the end of the day, epitaph, excuse me, epigraph is something else. Um, (laughs) That's like the end of a book. See, I'm in book mode. You can see. Um, Yeah, totally. You're totally focused. You're number one through five. um, They're not going to put at the end on your funeral, on your stone, whatever. They're not going to put there like, boy, she answered every email really fast. And she went to every dinner party she was invited to. And she cooked really great meals. Her floor was always vacuumed. Her laundry was always clean. She always had a new outfit. Um, she called all of her friends back. She replied to every text message. She wrote every article that was asked of her. She published on every single, like they're not, this is not the list that I want. And so it's like a radical act of saying no. Such a a really powerful message. And I love the idea of thinking, just very intentionally shifting your entire relationship to obligation and seeing um, the things that you want to do as possibly enemies of what you really want to do. Whereas you, it's very easy to just keep it as a spectrum 
And I think kind of to your earlier point about how it's faster, this kind of discernment of how we use our time and prioritize and learn how to say no is a different skill. It's the world comes at us faster in the information age and than it did before. And just the idea of feeling okay about saying no and having uh, assigning success to turning down something that you kind of actually did want rather than disappointment to it, even that by itself can be powerful. I'm just putting myself in the shoes of somebody who is a four-year four years into a graduate program, but they still have advisors and they still have people that are, um, you know, kind of saying jump, ju- you know, do this, jump, do that. Like, how do you respond to somebody that says, oh, here's an event we should go to? And they keep putting more stuff on your plate. Now, managers and advisors have a uh, uh, very bad track record of doing a good job. We don't actually have great bosses. Um, and, uh, you know, p- this management science theorists like Peter Drucker have talked about the abysmal rate. You know, baseball, baseball has a better batting average than managers do. If you actually uh, saw how many people left companies and why they left, you would, you, we would radically rethink management. Um, and how many people leave PhD programs, et cetera. But, you have this power dynamic that's not in your favor. And, and, uh, it's also gendered. Women are, are expected to say yes more than men are, and they get uh, punished for saying no more. So the way to, the very specific way to, um, to say no in a way that uh, lets you off the hook is to, when you've clearly defined your priorities and goals, like I've got, you know, a hundred pages to write by the end of the year. I've got this chapter due by this deadline is you respond with an or statement. You say, Oh, that event sounds amazing. Would you rather I go to the event or hit my book deadline? You're not saying no, you're just framing it always against that number one priority. And you put it back in the, the person's hands who has more power than you. And you say, Oh my gosh, these events sound so amazing. And if they say both, you go, ah, I just don't think it's going to be possible to get both of those things done. I'm going to pass on the event so that I can get priority number one done. Because in, if that puts them in the position of having to fall out of alignment and say, actually, your book's not that important as a response, or you just have to tough it out. You do that enough times and you, it doesn't work. It doesn't add up. That's perfect. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's like, I, I think everyone should stop. Well, obviously if you're in the car, don't do this, but you know, stop, <laughs> rewind, write that, write that down because I'm, I'm going to write that down too. Uh, it's a great way of, of framing the, framing the problem of being, uh, managed, especially when you're, you're not the one setting your own priorities. So, uh, you're, you're, you're the one setting your own priorities, but other person, other people are trying to throw different priorities into your pathway. So that could also also mean like somebody like a dean or a provost perhaps so th- th- these are important that's an important way to frame that i love i love that and i think that's a good way to end sarah if unless there's anything else to add i i think maybe we'll just ask you where people can find out more about you yeah thanks so much for having me um we could talk for hours and hours and hours i love this stuff but oh, i think we've filled people up with email scripts and tools they can use and, and frameworks so we'll I love that we're going to pause now. Um, I live on the internet at sarahkpeck.com is my personal website where I've been a, a writer and writing there for, oh, I, for, I keep losing count, eight years, nine years, seven years, something in those lines. And uh, my business is Startup Pregnant, so startuppregnant.com. 
And you can find us on many places in the internet uh, under at Sarah K. Peck or at Startup Pregnant. But I will be clear that I pick what I'm bad at. So I am not great at Twitter. Um, I'm not good at Facebook. And I'm not that great at sending emails by choice because I don't want to try to do that in lieu of writing my book. See, you've got to, you've got to practice what you preach and that's fantastic. Um, thank you so much. This has been really great. And I agree. I could keep talking to you for a long time. It's just, it feels so needed and so practical and helpful. Mm. Thanks so much for throwing your energy into this and sharing it with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to episode seven of Helium Podcast. You can find the show notes at www.teamhelium.co slash episode seven. Thank you to all the listeners of Helium Podcast out there. We really appreciate you supporting the show. Another way you can support the show is by going to www.myprofessorwebsite.com. That's our sponsor for all of our shows so far. So please check it out. Also, As I mentioned at the top of the show, we have a poll. So we are trying to figure out the best themes for our episodes in the next year. And so we're inviting our guests for next year already. And we're trying to get a sense of young professors, professors just starting out, what they want to hear about in terms of the the themes that they are facing throughout the year. So we have put a poll up on our website at www.teamhelium.co slash poll where you can go and help us bring the best content to you, the most relevant content. As always, our music is written by Michael Blake of Portland, Oregon. He can be found at mblakemusic.com. Helium Podcast is produced and edited by Christine Ogilvie-Hendren and Matt Hotze. Have an awesome day, guys.